you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpecc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. Joined today by Huntington Hospital in Pasadena's Director of Infectious Disease and Prevention, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner. Dr. Schreiner, very good Monday to you. Very good Monday to you, too, Larry. Thank you for having me. I am struck by what we're seeing with Omicron, even though we have seen an increase in death, sadly, as a lagging indicator of that huge surge that we've seen in in Omicron cases, uh, at least in terms of cases, we are seeing a dramatic drop. My my son was even sharing with me at Claremont McKenna College where where he's in school that uh, where they test everybody weekly there, that that's part of their routine. They dropped from uh, just a week ago, having three percent of all the people that they test, including staff and students, dropped to 0.7 percent in a week, which is remarkable to see that kind of a drop in uh, Omicron um, positive testing there at, at, at that school. Is that kind of a microcosm of what we're seeing? Yes, I think so, Larry. I think that we're pretty much following the pattern that it actually had in South Africa and also in Europe, where you have this tremendous spike, a huge number of cases because of its infectiousness, but then also over the top and down the other side pretty quickly. Uh, that, of course, is unfortunate for the folks that did get infected and now are hospitalized, and we, of course, are seeing an increase in death rates. So um, for a, a smaller group of folks, uh, but still a large group because of the number of total infections, uh, they're having uh, long ongoing problems and, and so forth. But I think that in terms of the actual positivity rate in the communities and in places like colleges, it is uh, beginning to disappear fairly quickly. Well, and it's great. At his school, at least, they're back to in-person classes today. So nice they're doing that in an environment where there's comparatively little COVID compared to, to what they've had. And I know that his school isn't alone. number of colleges, uh, either last week or this week, are going back to in-person instruction. Uh, do you feel generally okay about that? I think so. Um, I do consulting for Occidental College, and they're doing the same thing. So, uh, but that has to be on on the uh, with using the tools of frequent testing and uh, good mask compliance. We still want people to wear high quality masks, um, either KN95s or N95s, in the classrooms um, to prevent transmission. Uh, there's still a lot of virus circulating in the community, even though it's lower than it was last week, but there's still a very high positivity rate. If you compare it, it's even actually higher than it was during the last surge. So there's a lot of virus out there still, and I, I'm a little concerned about people letting their guard down 
but in schools that do frequent testing and that really encourage good mask wearing, I think it's a a safe thing to do. We heard this morning from Moderna that the FDA has given its full approval for use of Moderna's COVID-19 vaccine, which comes something like five months after Pfizer got uh, the similar approval. Do you know why it took so much longer for Moderna? I don't. I think some of the data they wanted to just make sure that uh, Moderna behaved a little bit differently. It it seemed to elicit a very robust response. Uh, So I think that they just wanted to kind of maybe take a second look at that. Um, They've been fiddling around a little bit with some of the uh, data on young children, adjusting doses and so forth. They, of course, as you know, uh, gave half a dose for their booster as opposed to a full dose. So I think that they really wanted to look at that kind of uh, information and make sure that it was uh, that it warranted that approval, which of course it did, and that's terrific. And I, I hope that puts to rest, uh, or at least makes some people who've been hesitant because they weren't the vaccines were not fully pr- approved that the, now they are. And uh, please go get vaccinated and certainly get boosted. Uh, and we should talk a bit about how this expedited approval is coming because because even to get the full FDA approval has happened so much faster than it typically does for a vaccine. And and can you speak, uh, uh, Dr. why you know, just the sheer numbers of people who've received these two mRNA vaccines, how that factored in to the FDA's final decision? Well, that's uh, certainly part of the, the whole um, algorithm here, Larry, is that because we're in the middle of a pandemic, there's just an abundance of disease. And we've really, it's a very, if you want to test a vaccine against uh, SARS-CoV-2, you know, this is the perfect situation because there's just so much virus. And so it's easy to test. It's easy to accrue huge numbers of cases and watch the performance of the vaccine. Plus, we've had now basically sort of three surges that have happened um, since people have been starting to receive the vaccine. And you can see just an incredible a performance of the vaccines, that they hold up very, very well in protecting people from serious illness, hospitalization, and death, especially if they're boosted. And what we're learning now is that probably this is a three-part vaccine, that fully vaccinated will mean the third, vac- the third vaccine, the booster. Uh, and I think we have to sort of begin to get away from the terminology of booster and just think of that as the third part of a three-part vaccine, which, as we've said before, is not uncommon in many different types of vaccines. But the ability to study this with so many people all around the world has allowed a rather rapid approval of it. Doesn't mean that the science isn't there. The science is robust. It's very good. These are high numbers. These vaccines are some of the best tested vaccines we've ever had, and uh, and they perform incredibly well. We have new CDC data on effectiveness of boosters, and be good to talk about this because you know so many of us know people who were fully vaccinated and boosted who got breakthrough cases of Omicron because of of how infectious it is. Um, but um, but share with us what the CDC findings were about the total effectiveness of boosters. Well, once again, I think that, that what this has shown, and they just actually reported it on, on the NPR prelude here, is that the booster dose really decreases your risk of uh, serious infection and uh, hospitalization and death. It decreases your risk of death by about 95%, whether it's Pfizer or Moderna. And both of the, the vaccines um, do seem to really lock in the immunity that you need to protect yourself from even some of the new variants that are emerging. And what's A good thing is that it does appear that fully boosted people, though they can become infected, and remember that vaccines are not designed really to prevent infection. They're designed to prevent illness from infection. 
but we do know that fully vaccinated boosted people actually are five times less likely to acquire the virus if they're uh, vaccinated fully and uh, that they certainly will be protected in terms of the severity of the disease. So the vast majority of people that were fully vaccinated and boosted who got Omicron were not, you know, terribly sick. They might have had a fever or two for a little while. They might have felt pretty flu-like, but um, they certainly survived and did not require hospitalization. So I think going forward, it's important, and I wish the CDC would kind of embrace this a little more robustly, uh, that, that fully vaccinated means three vaccines, uh, and that that really locks in the immunity. The other good news is that this, these vaccines in fully boosted seems to perform very well with the uh, BA2 variant of subvariant of Omicron. And that's good news as we see that beginning to circulate a little bit more. Uh, Dr. Schreiner, let's let's talk a little bit about who's dying from COVID-19 now, because early in the pandemic, um, the numbers were driven largely by people in congregate living center, uh, centers like nursing homes, people who um, were were dealing with a variety of health challenges already. Uh, there were certainly were people healthy uh, who were getting sick and dying, but the, most of the numbers were coming from people who were compromised uh, health-wise, uh, often in multiple ways. What are we seeing now about the people who are dying? Well, unfortunately, the vast majority of deaths that are occurring due to um, Omicron and to, and really has been the whole pattern through this pandemic, are people who are unvaccinated. We had very high amounts of nursing home disease and mortality at the beginning of the pandemic before we had the vaccines. Uh, but once again, the fact that uh, many, many nursing home residents have now been fully vaccinated, boosted, uh, that really protects them. And I would like to make a comment about the Pasadena Public Health Department that went out identified 2,000 nursing home residents who had not yet received their third dose, went out on a weekend and boosted all those patients, and I think that saved an enormous number of lives and certainly saved the hospital from an influx of of very sick, sick people. So what we're seeing in the hospital now are unvaccinated individuals. They do the most poorly. Uh, and then uh, under-vaccinated individuals, people who have not gotten their booster. And, uh, and so those folks do occasionally get hospitalized and actually can be quite ill, but the mortality is still very much uh, in the, in the uh, folks that haven't been vaccinated at all. Uh, Dr. Schreiner, when do you think we're going to start seeing deaths declining um, as that lagging indicator, similarly to how we're seeing case decline now? That usually happens about three to six weeks, sort of after you kind of go over the top. Uh, it kind of depends on how long people... Um, you know, hang on. Um, we do hope that some people that are still very sick in the ICU will recover and be able to be discharged home to their families. Uh, but and it's just a very sad part of the part of the pandemic, especially now because it's entirely preventable. Um, we do have some patients that are very immunocompromised. They have cancer. They have uh, uh, organ transplant, and they've acquired the disease because they don't respond to the vaccines very well. Um, and unfortunately, they often have a very severe outcome. But for the vast majority of the deaths that we see, it's totally preventable. And I think that's what's so heartbreaking and frustrating, frankly, in healthcare right now is that we're trying to encourage people to protect themselves and protect their families uh, with the vaccines. And it just if they if they are unvaccinated, they're at very high risk for a bad outcome. Douglas in Los Feliz emailed us a common refrain I'm hearing from my vaccine hesitant friends is 
that the long-term effects of the COVID vaccine are unknown. They claim all past vaccines have undergone years-long trials to determine their safety, and the COVID vaccine was just created too quickly, they say. Is there any merit, Douglas asked, to these concerns about potential long-term health risks? Well, we've been studying these vaccines now for a little bit longer than 18 months and uh, under huge numbers. I mean, there's millions and millions of people now who've received the mRNA vaccines, and uh, there's not any evidence for any kind of long-term post-vaccine effect. Vaccines are very safe. Many of the vaccines that people routinely get, the measles vaccine, the rabies vaccine, those have not nearly been as studied, uh, well-studied, even the tetanus shot, at well-studied as this vaccine series. And so the long-term side effects of vaccines is really something I think that is often used to kind of make people feel better for not getting vaccinated. But it's just, I think, a situation where these vaccines are very well studied. They're very, very safe. And we know that there are incredibly long-term side effects with COVID. Uh, If you don't die from it, you may well develop long COVID, and that can have a lifelong effect. One of the things that people have been concerned about is fertility. We know that the vaccines do not cause infertility, but COVID does. So men that become infected with with COVID um, and are unvaccinated, they may end up having trouble conceiving down the road. And so that's another reason to get vaccinated, not to mention just saving your life and and sticking around. So I think it's it's just important that people understand that these vaccines have been very well studied in huge numbers, probably the best studied vaccines over a longer period of time now. Uh, than many, many of the vaccines that have come before them. There are certainly, though, medications that we've experienced, you know, thalidomide uh, most prominently, which had uh, serious unintended or disastrous consequences. And um, so people think about things, you know, unintended consequences. Do we have examples with vaccines, any of that have been developed, that um, down the road, a number of years later, showed that they had done harm? Well, there's a lot of people who feel that way about many vaccines. And, of course, the famous one was sort of the influenza vaccine. There was a concern about it producing Guillain-Barre. But there really haven't been good studies that have really substantiated that. Live vaccines or live attenuated vaccines, where they actually give you part of the infection, sometimes can have some deleterious effects. We know that the yellow fever vaccine, for example, which is a live attenuated vaccine, in rare cases can cause liver damage. Uh, But all of those uh, events usually happen close to the time of vaccination, not two or three or four or five years later. There have been no documented cases of birth defects associated with uh, with vaccines um, that are being currently used. You know, the early smallpox vaccines, smallpox vaccines could give you smallpox because that's how they worked. And about 15% of people who were vaccinated with smallpox actually got smallpox. Wow. You know, you have to be careful in terms of using live vaccines, but these type of vaccines, they do not get into your genetic material. There's no interaction in any of your uh, ability to um, uh, you know, have normal children. And in fact, mothers who aren't vaccinated are at very high risk for having uh, problems with COVID. So it's, and, and the other piece of this, Larry, is to remember is that the FDA and, and the CDC are watching. We're keeping data. We're watching it and seeing if something funny would emerge. But 
most vaccine reactions will happen in and around and close to the time of vaccination. Uh, Lyndon Chatsworth emailed us at ATComments at kpcc.org. I heard a doctor on a different podcast uh, say for younger people, the protection from serious illness and death is not markedly increased. This doctor argued that since the primary reason for vaccinations is that protection, that we should not require younger people to get boosters in order to attend college or to go places. What is your opinion? So we vaccinate people for two reasons, to protect them and to protect the community. And uh, it is true that younger people, for the most part, uh, can tolerate uh, COVID better than other people. Not always, though. We just, we've had our own experiences with 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds and, of course, children that have done very poorly with some significant mortality. But they generally, because they're healthier and have younger immune systems, have a lower risk of death from the actual disease. That being said, we also know that young people are very, very effective virus spreaders. Um, and they may not be very symptomatic, so they don't know that they're sick, and they're, they're perpetuating the, the pandemic in the community. And that's, you know, that's a very important part of vaccination programs is individual health but community health. And so young people, as they are certainly possible to spread infection, and we know that they, they can spread infection in their families, at colleges, and so forth, that that will just perpetuate the, the pandemic. And so that's another important uh, epidemiologic tool is to try to control the spread of disease by using the vaccine. Let's talk with Andreas in Riverside. Nice to have you with us on Air Talk right ahead. Yes, I'm recovering from COVID. I was fully vaxxed and boosted. I'm just wondering what I can look to in the near future. I don't feel like I'm 100 percent at my energy, and I know it's case by case, but what what might I expect? And I also had a question about vaccine-hesitant folks, but I'll I'll pitch that first one. Okay, Andreas, thanks. I'm not sure if we have time for the second. We'll do our best. Dr. Schreiner. So, Andreas, I'm sorry that you got COVID. It does happen. It's just a very infectious variant, this Omicron. Generally, you know, just like a very bad cold, it takes two, three, four, sometimes six weeks uh, remember back when all of us had colds, and, and colds weren't quite as terrifying as they are now during the pandemic, but it did take a long time for kind of the lingering side effects, a dry cough, a little bit of fatigue, that sort of thing. If you're developing high fevers or a, a more severe symptoms, then you really should consult with your primary care physician. But it's perfectly normal for viral illnesses and the post-viral effects to drag on for a couple of weeks until you're back to your old self. All right. Kristen in Mar Vista says, when will there be an acknowledgement that vaccinated people can still get COVID and transmit the virus? And why are we continuing to push mandates if that's the case? Kristen, I've heard people say that like you're saying it. I never heard that ever argued that people wouldn't get COVID if they're vaccinated. I, In the same way, I've never heard that said about any vaccine in history. I wonder where that message was ever sent that you would not get COVID if you're if you're vaccinated or that you wouldn't transmit it. Dr. Schreiner, do you know where people ever heard that message? Well, I think it sort of gets mixed up when we say vaccines prevent disease. And I think there's this sort of hope that, you know, you're supercharged and you've got this shield up now and you're not going to get the disease. And, you know, we know that influenza, influenza is a very ineffective vaccine a lot of the time. I mean, it's a good thing to get, but it it only is about 60 percent effective sometimes. So 
Um, I think that people have, I mean, hopefully now with the, this pandemic, they understand what vaccines really do. And the main thing is, of course, is really just to prevent severe disease and help the community decrease the transmission of disease in the community. Uh, but it doesn't prevent you from carrying the virus, uh, although it's, you know, it is less in, in vaccinated people. Their viral burden is less. Uh, and so it does do that to some degree. It's just that's not what they're designed to do. Well, it's funny because I even remember talking about what the World Health Organization threshold uh, for what they would consider an effective vaccine. And I don't remember. What was it? Were they looking for like 60 percent or something um, in yeah. keeping people from getting sick? Which is what we get with influenza. And we got 95 percent. Yeah. So I, I just don't know where that was ever interpreted that people would not get sick or even die who are fully vaccinated. Uh, Michelle in Sherman Oaks, good to have you with us. Um, I received the Johnson & Johnson single-shot vaccine in March of 21 and was feeling somewhat underprotected. And so as soon as I was eligible for a booster, I got the half-dose Moderna vaccine in October. And I'm still feeling like I'm one shot shy of most of my contemporaries who have now received three full shots. So will there be a recommendation forthcoming for those of us who've received what I've received to get yet another booster or a third mRNA shot? That's an excellent question, Michelle, and many people are in that situation, and I can certainly understand the concern about that. Um, There are data that suggest that you're still fully protected, people that um, you can measure antibodies in uh, J&J recipients who then have an mRNA boost uh, at at this time right now, and they still appear to be highly protective. There's some, they're watching this, there may be some point in time when it will be prudent to go ahead and do a, a boost uh, but because the data seems to support that you're still just fine and uh, should be able to, uh, to to be comparable to somebody who's had three-part series, um, that we don't need to do that. You know, it's it's still developing, and I think that it may well come, but it may come at a time when all of us are going to need a booster anyway. So I think that's kind of the best we can answer right now. Michelle, thanks very much. Adam in Santa Fe, New Mexico, asks Dr. Schreiner if you could elaborate on infertility in men related to long COVID. So we do know that COVID seems to cause, um, it increases the risk for infertility in males. And part of this probably has to do, without getting too deep into the weeds, uh, where the ACE2 receptors are. Um, The testes and uh, male genital tract has a lot of ACE2 receptors, and there's, there's a lot of virus that can attach to that. So that may be part of the mechanism. I don't think it's very well understood, but it's now been shown to be the case. It's not super common, but it can occur, and that's another reason to get vaccinated, especially if you're intending on uh, having children. So um, I think that it's, uh, it's still an evolving uh, a bit of data, but it's interesting. We don't know whether the same is true in women, uh, but the virus probably has to has some sort of interaction with these ACE2 receptors, which are in abundance down in the uh, testicles. Sean in Palms uh, says, I have a five-month-old and we've been pretty locked down since the Omicron surge. We'd like to bring our five-month-old around people. Is having them take a rapid test enough of a precaution in order to do that? Well, the problem is, and this is why we really want to get uh, young people, you know, infants and up, uh, up sort of below six months to above vaccinated, they are very vulnerable. And so um, the uh, uh, just a rapid test in somebody who's going to be around the, the uh, infant is not a good idea because it misses asymptomatic disease. And it may miss somebody, for example, who's fully vaccinated and boosted, who actually is infected with Omicron and could spread it to a completely vulnerable host. So uh, but you can do 
testing with uh, with the use of a high quality mask and good hand washing, and that might be a way to be around the baby. But it is, of course, it would also be prudent to be vaccinated and boosted. Uh, but we do worry about the real vulnerable populations that have not yet received any vaccinations. Stephen Rosemead says if you're vaccinated but not boosted, you get COVID with mild symptoms. For how long could you expect to test positive? Um, it's, that's so funny because, Steve, it's so odd because I've heard all over the place about people's testing when they when they test negative. And Dr. Schreiner, can you elaborate why that is that some people will continue to test positive a long time after they were infected and others get that negative test fairly quickly? So the reason why people test positive persistently, oops, sorry. There's... Someone's coming to the door. <laughs> I think the Amazon. <laughs> An intruder. <laughs> uh, the, the reason why people test positive is because uh, they have the, the PCR test is so good at picking up viral bits and pieces that it's picking up little pieces of that virus, even though you may not be infectious anymore. And this is actually where a rapid test may be helpful because the rapid test measures viral replication. And so uh, we are using rapid tests now to sort of de- determine infectiousness. The PCRs, again, they're so sensitive that they pick up little dribs and drabs of virus that may not, may not be that you're infectious anymore, but the virus or the test is still detecting it. All right. Dr. Schreiner, I'm not messing with your front door, hearing your dog. That's a a very powerful message. Denise in Crenshaw Manor emailed us, do we know if states with lower vaccination rates and fewer masking requirements uh, than California are seeing similar drops in rates of Omicron infection? They are uh, because they may have a higher peak and they may have, it may be a more prolonged um, uh, sort of duration because of the numbers of unvaccinated individuals who are in the hospital. And many of those states have horrendously high off, uh, numbers in the hospital, and that will take a while to clear out. Uh, but because the virus, it just sort of, it just it seeks out unvaccinated people and people who are non-immune, and, um, but also sort of takes in some of the immune folks as well because it's so infectious. And so in, in lower vaccinated states, the, you see higher death rates and more infection. The speed with which the, the uh, Omicron moves through that population, depends a little bit on um, areas that might be more rural where people aren't uh, in such large cities, so that may be a little s- slower and that kind of makes up for it. But the dynamics are certainly more disturbing in places where there's uh, a lot of a lack of vaccination. You can see that in California, in the San Joaquin Valley, in areas that have low vaccination rates. Lorraine in Los Angeles emailed us, are those who are immunocompromised able to get a second booster if we're soon reaching the six-month mark of our first booster? Uh, Yes, the immunocompromised folks uh, should probably actually receive a a fourth booster. Um, It depends on what the reason is for being immunocompromised, but certainly we know for individuals that have um, things like CLL or multiple myeloma or hematologic malignancies or organ transplants, they actually should get three shots, and then a booster. So their full course, fully vaccinated course, would be with an additional fourth booster. Um, After that, we don't really know whether that provides any additional protection if you continue to boost at five and six and so forth, like, you know, multiple uh, events after that. 
Jerry in West Hill said my 100-year-old mother lives in a nursing home. During the beginning of the pandemic, there were quite a few fatalities at her facility. After the vaccine, less so. And after the boosters, virtually none. She tested positive about three weeks ago and showed no symptoms. Vaccines do, in fact, work. That's Jerry in West Hills. Uh, Jeff in uh, Mid-City, L.A., says, I didn't hear much talk about viral load until Omicron. Now I've heard that infected individuals carry more viral load in their upper respiratory systems. How does that play into the transmissibility of COVID? Well, that's a great uh, observation, and that's exactly why Omicron is so much more infectious. Um, It is able to uh, replicate in the upper airways, which is a very effective way to spread the virus. When you have uh, have disease down in your lungs, yes, you may cough and you still are infectious, but a sneeze when somebody's infected with Omicron in their nose can just spread enormous numbers of viral particles. And so uh, by concentrating in the upper airways, it does make it more infectious. It also increases the amount of virus that's up there. That's what a viral load is. It's just the amount of virus that's in an area. Uh, and that seems to be an increasingly important part of understanding how this disease behaves. We know that it may have some impact on the severity of the disease. We know that viral loads in people who are very sick with uh, with uh, COVID, may that may be a factor that increases their risk for long COVID. We don't have very good ways of measuring it um, uh, in sort of routinely uh, without, but there are some that we can, some tools we can use in the hospital. But for example, in HIV, we use a lot of viral load assays to measure effectiveness of therapy. And I think we do need to develop some of those type of a laboratory test where we can get a much, much better level of viral load information. All right, Dr. Kimberly Schreiner of Huntington Hospital joining us on AirTalk, taking your questions on COVID-19. Gloria in Pasadena emailed, is it possible the Omicron subvariant stealth is actually a new variant in its early stages and that we have recognized it early in the process uh, of becoming because of increased testing for variants? That's a great question. Um, It doesn't appear to be. The genomic sequencing is just a little bit different. There's sort of three varieties. There's BA1, BA2, and BA3. BA3 doesn't seem to be circulating very much. It really does. It's sort of a, it's like a, you know, a family tree. And this one is really on the same line as, as the first Omicron. So it's very, very similar genetically. It's just had a couple little twists in its mutation. It's probably not a completely new variant, though that could happen, and that's something we have to watch. It's why genomic testing is so very important in monitoring this pandemic and hopefully getting us out of this pandemic. Dr. Schreiner, I I know you have many very well-informed, very sharp patients at Huntington, but I have to say I'm so impressed with the caliber of questions we get from listeners, I mean, that being yet another of them. um, I, I find it quite remarkable the, the level of intelligence and the kinds of questions that we get for you. It's just, it is amazing, Larry, and it just I'm very uh, pleased to, to hear how informed people are and how curious they are about this in addition to the just sort of tedium that's happening here with this pandemic. But yeah. Very yeah. well informed and very good questions. How are, how are you and your colleagues at Huntington holding up uh, among the, the challenge of this variant? Is, the, is there any chance now at all to take a bit of a breath? It is coming, I think. We're on the other side. We're, we're seeing we're on the decline, just like most of the county, and that's good. Um, and our staff certainly need a respite. You know, this has been a very difficult surge in terms of the numbers and severity of patients and also uh, the fact that many of the staff became sick with this and could not work. So we had, you know, staffing shortages like all hospitals. 
I hope we have a few weeks, months of a little bit of quiet uh, so that people can really begin to try to uh, have a respite. Everybody needs it. There's a lot of trauma going on with this pandemic. Um, you know, it's very clear that I don't think it's going to be over, but I think that we have very good tools to control the pandemic going forward between good testing, vaccines, of course, uh, and perhaps even the use of the antivirals down the road. So I'm confident that we'll begin to live with this in a much more productive and happier way. But it just we need a little break for a yeah. while. I think it's coming. And just finally, San Francisco, as you probably read, uh, for people who are fully boosted, um, are going to be exempt from uh, San Francisco's mask mandate in certain group settings. Uh, you think that we're headed that way soon? I think so. I, I worry about that a little bit because because uh, vaccinated, fully vaccinated people can still spread disease. But I think we're heading for a little bit more easing up on some of these mitigation techniques. All right. Sounds good, Dr. Schreiner, as always. Thank you so much and have a terrific week. Thank you, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in L.A. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at LAist.com at kpcc.org or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.